Welcome to the Media Navigators podcast brought to you by the World Media Group and my name is Belinda Barker and I am now the ex-chief executive of the World Media Group and I'm delighted to introduce um, Jamie Credland who is taking over my role. Welcome Jamie. Thanks Belinda, I am so excited and absolutely thrilled to be here, I'm thrilled to be the new chief executive. There's a lot of plans uh, for the year ahead for World Media Group. Uh, Belinda and I have been secretly squirrelling and working away over the Christmas period to uh, sort out the handover and get plans for the year ahead. But today is all about Davos. We've just come out of our Davos panel here in London, um, which is an incredible session, lots of great insights. Uh, the session was chaired by Spria Srivastava, the London Bureau Chief and International Executive Editor at Business Insider. Um, and on the panel, we had Faisal Islam, who's the economics editor at the BBC, Yasmin Serhan, staff writer at Time, and Hannah Ziadi, who's a writer at CNN Business. Um, lots of great insights to share. So with that, we'll hand over to Spria, who's just about to ask our panel everything they need to know about Davos and the year ahead. Okay, so um, I'm going to make, make my life easier and just ask our panelists to one by one introduce yourselves. Um, and Give us your top um, headline takeaways from Davos. Um, what was it this year that really sort of stayed with you walking away from the promenade, coming back into London, one thing that really stayed with you? So, oh, Hi, I'm Faisal Islam. I'm the economics editor of BBC News, occasional presenter of Newsnight. Uh, what, okay, right. Well, it's a kind of battle between the sort of geopolitical sort of Damocles hanging, not quite over us, but sort of to the side now. It's been hanging over us for three years. We kind of thought that this World Economic Forum would be everybody saying, oh, we put all that three years of like pandemic and lockdown and Russia invading Ukraine. If not, it hasn't politically been put behind us, but this kind of peak economic impact of it has been put behind us. And now we can all talk about like some degree of normality. Oh, there we go. And AI and all that sort of stuff. Um, and what you had was a battle between actually new geo geopolitical issues, but still that sense of optimism about how the world economy could change over two to three years. It was that, so it was kind of both at the same time, good and bad. I mean, I've got the, this is the good news. And then, then the bad news is more like that, but we can go into that thing. <laughs> That's very interesting. Well, I'm looking forward to sort of delving deeper into this. But, yeah, <laughs> yes, man. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Yasmin Serhan. I'm a staff writer at Time, where I cover foreign affairs. Um, and given that focus, I think my headline takeaway from Davos was Gaza and Ukraine vie for the world's scattered attention. Um, I think, not unsurprisingly, it's the World Economic Forum, uh, not the World Geopolitical Forum. Um, I think, I want to say, the number of business executives outnumbered the number of world leaders representatives of, of governments, five, four or five to one, quick math, um, something like that. So in a way, it wasn't completely surprising, but I think given the fact that Gaza and Ukraine have both respectively kind of taken a lot of the attention kind of outside of Davos um, for, for much of the last, in Gaza's case, the last few months, and Ukraine's case, the last couple of years, I had gone in with the expectation that it might take over the forum as well. I was sadly kind of mistaken, but it did assert itself um, a little bit, which, which was definitely interesting to see. Cool. I'm uh, Hannah Ziadi. I'm a writer at CNN Business. And I think my main takeaway was that there's clearly a little bit more optimism about the world economy. So if we're looking at it from an economic point of view, 
geopolitics is clouding that outlook because we have a record election year uh, globally and obviously that injects a certain amount of uncertainty into the outlook. And then there are some question marks over whether inflation has really been beaten and I think that is really critical for businesses um, because a lot of the optimism going into this year, certainly from an economic financial point of view, has been expectations that central banks will cut interest rates and markets have been pricing that in pretty aggressively. And that has implications for everything in the economy. So for the cost of your mortgage and credit card and car finance. And so if central banks do cut interest rates, that sort of acts as, as a bit of like a juice for the economy. However, if it turns out that inflation hasn't, you know, I mean, clearly inflation is way down on where it was when Davos happened a year, a year ago. Um, inflation was just coming off record highs back then. So it's come down very sharply. But there, for me, there was a lot of... Uh, nervousness over whether we can really declare victory over inflation just yet, not just from economists who we may assume may have that view, or central bankers who are trying to push back against expectations for interest rate cuts, but also from bankers and from business executives saying, we think markets are a bit optimistic about how you know soon or how quickly central banks may cut interest rates. So sort of a, a bit of, and then, you know, just to what Yasmin was saying, uh, conflicts, obviously complicate that picture. So we've already seen uh, shipping costs going through the roof because of uh, what's happening in the Red Sea for various reasons that I won't get into that may not yet filter into the price of finished goods. But obviously, if the Middle East conflict uh, widens, then and, and energy prices spike, then all bets are off. You know, and the same is true of the of the Ukraine war. If that again has, has impacts on food prices, which it could, then uh, all bets are off. So I think yeah, <laughs> some optimism, but yep. there's, but you know, as as everybody's already highlighted, the picture is is cloudy. Yeah, well, very interesting. We'll unpack each one of that, but two very interesting themes. So uh, two interesting themes that I picked on. One was AI was everywhere, uh, walking up and down the promenade. There were big posters of uh, AI. Every company sort of leaning into it, from Microsoft to Google to IBM to Salesforce. Um, more and more companies leaning into AI. So I would love to sort of get your take in the conversations that you've had with business leaders, with government leaders. How are they actually thinking about AI? How are companies thinking about implementing AI into their day-to-day. One aspect that I picked up and tell me what you all think is um, there was a bit of a learning gap and disconnect in terms of how companies think about AI and how they're going to be implementing and everybody wanted to talk about AI. But does everybody actually understand it? Um, Not sure yet. So Faisal, love to start from you. Yeah, well, I mean, the big picture was that it was kind of about a third of Davos was a giant AI sales conference and you couldn't really escape it. Um, even if you wanted to. And obviously the cynical journalists seek, you know, smelling over hype and bubble, you know, would have had a decent time in the snow uh, as we did. Um, having said that, I found myself expecting to be rather cynical about it and coming and returning thinking, okay, yeah, I think this is quite real actually. I mean, I, I was lucky, I was kind of had, you know, I, I was there with conversations between Altman and Satya Nadella a briefing off uh, other big tech, tech players and you know I'm struck that the you know obviously Microsoft are using OpenAI as a kind of like you know who's like a kind of caged uh, you know circus exhibit's not quite right something a little bit more attractive than that but you know just being show OpenAI Sam Altman was being used on display for every business in the world to come to Microsoft and buy lots of AI off them 
Um, uh, but his kind of take, his macro take was interesting. He said the world's not growing, inflation adjusted, 0%. If you were to AI off is a general purpose technology that will seep into everything like the railways 200 years ago. And we're not quite sure who's going to win, who's going to lose, but it has the capacity to raise global growth by three or four percent. Within that, countries will leapfrog other countries. He has a very sort of personal anecdote, Satya Nadella, about India. India, it pains him that India missed out on the Industrial Revolution. It's going to be at the forefront of this revolution. And then obviously, that, and then expresses itself in other terms. I think the takeaway, the reason why I'm less cynical and I'm quite enthused, in particular about Britain's role in using AI, is a story that um, uh, Google uh, DeepMind told me about AlphaFold uh, when I said, you know, is it really, really, really going to increase productivity? I mean, I'm not entirely sure ChatGPT is increasing my colleagues' productivity who are just like using it to write jokes and stuff. That's not BBC colleagues, obviously, that's other colleagues. Um, they, um, and, and, he said, and he came up with this. He said, well, you want productivity? How about this? It takes, it took one PhD five years to map a protein, okay? Um, and they managed 200,000 of the proteins. And it would take a billion PhD years to map all the proteins in the world, 200 million. And a billion years ago, we were basically algae. And all, yeah, not just you. I'm not the fun insult. We were all, that's okay. We, everything here was algae, right? And that's PhD years. That's probably even longer. But the um, AlphaFold over at King's Cross has done all of them in three months. Right. Right? Now, that is productivity. Yeah. And they're going to do the same with material science so to crystalline structures of everything. Mm-hmm. So that's to create any product to do anything. Wow. And they're going to do the same with genetic mutations and other, you know, anything you can think of it's all going to get covered. And a lot of that's been done out of the UK. So optimistic, but also optimistic about UK frontier technology in this niche. Yeah. Um, you know, Yasmin, I think uh, you probably have an insight into governments and, you know, sort of talking to leaders and sort of behind closed doors. Did you feel like AI made it to the conversation or was there more concern around what's happening in the geopolitical sphere right now? Yes, I mean, I was one of the people I think Fazil was saying was not predisposed to looking for AI. If anything, I was actually actively trying to avoid it. Um, that said, my colleague Billy Perigo at Time is, is the one to read on all of that. But but I found that actually in, in most, if not all, conversations and certainly the sessions that I was in, it came up at least once. Um, I think, I mean, for, for me personally, as, as someone who also kind of covers d- democracy and, and rising authoritarianism around the world, um, where I saw a very interesting kind of conflation of, of big topics at Davos was, of course, um, generative AI and, and the risks and rewards that come with that, but, but also the fact that we do have an unprecedented election year on our hands where half of the global population is going to be going to the polls at one point, including probably everyone here, everyone in the U.S. Um, and I think one thing that was certainly on my mind, particularly given the fact that this year's conference was under the banner of rebuilding trust, this question of, you know, how is generative AI going to impact these elections? There's so many happening at once. We've already seen instances where AI has been used to mislead people in the hands of bad actors or perhaps even bad candidates who want to mislead voters. You know, could things go wrong? Um, in terms of kind of the conversations that I had with with kind of various officials and leaders, we were more talking about the geopolitical context. But I know even when speaking to people in the more kind of human rights space, this was definitely something that was of concern. 
and something that they said, at least, you know, I'm thinking of one person in particular who I spoke with on Wednesday, so kind of midway through, that they said that they were actually a bit disappointed that there wasn't more programming on that. Um, the caveat being that Davos, one of the challenging aspects of it is you kind of have perennial FOMO. There's so much going on that you can't possibly attend everything. So very good chance her and I missed the one panel or session that was about how do we address um, AI in these elections and, and how, what can governments do um, to to address that. But I know th the folks that I think at Google Jigsaw have been focusing on this. Um, and, and I think it's an issue that's, that's high up in our you know, on the agenda, but I, I think the fact that so many elections, some of which have already happened, you, you look at you look at Taiwan, you look at Bangladesh, but but equally so many coming down the pike, I think we're going to have to learn very fast. And I think that's something I probably would have wanted to hear more about, um, but something I'm sure we're also gonna talk about beyond Davos. I mean, Davos, I mean, I think we talked in our earlier conversations is very much, it's good at kind of setting the agenda for the year. Obviously there's only so much you're gonna accomplish in the span of a week and this was helps, but um, ideally, that will be something that we focus on in the year ahead. We, we have to. Yeah. I mean, I think um, one of the things that I heard quite a bit was about so countries like India. India is going for an election this year, right? 1.4 billion people going to vote. Um, the spread of misinformation, spread of deep fakes is very wide uh, in India. How is how are they going to be able to control it? Things like that. Did you did those things ever make it to conversations? I mean, any feel free. Anyone can jump in. But. Yeah, the, the, I mean, there was just really briefly, there was a, there was a big conversation about that from uh, media executives, many of whom part of this group. Um, and it's the sheer power that's coming um, means that when people think about, you know, misinformation and you know, fact checking a piece of fake news, you know, we're talking about, you know, the instant ability to create thousands of articles that are quite credible with credible audio and video and to, and that being the design of bad actors not to specifically misinform but to completely muddy the pitch in terms of information for mass the mass of populations right and you sort of think wow you know that this will knock people for six when it starts to happen and it hasn't actually started to happen yet and in that world you know some of the brands, you know, I don't, you know, we had the cynical story there from before. You know, I, I, I think there never could have been a better argument for strong and trusted media brands than what's coming down the road from the mass ability of individuals and individual players to promulgate. Misinformation doesn't even get it. It's kind of mass information confusion. Yeah. Um, it's pretty scary stuff. Yeah. And like, I, I just can't see how we're not as important as ever yeah. in, that, in that world. Although yeah, and also we will say that, won't we? Yeah, so we're like, we're consuming news very much in a siloed fashion now compared to in the past where you would like kind of have opportunity to discuss and fact check your reading and you're just consuming that news. So you don't know how much of that is correct, right? Um, sorry, you were, you were saying something, I think, Yasmin. Oh, no, I was just, I thought of one example, but Time had a really interesting, I keep plugging Time, I can't imagine why, um, <laughs> a round table on bridging the digital divide, but actually a, Singapore's Minister for Communications had come in and kind of made that exact point that Faisal had talked about, which was about the fact that the role that the media have to play in in kind of meeting this moment where, you know, shoring up trust. Um, 
because obviously this conversation was about, you know, despite the fact that apparently 95% of where people live is covered by broadband, uh, as many as a third of people are still offline. Getting those people online is really important, but equally making sure that, you know, we're enabling that everyone who can get online is getting accurate information. She heaped a lot of pressure on the media, um, which which I think is, is important because, you know, obviously people, as Belinda was saying, even in her introductory remarks, I mean, the, this element of democracy and providing people with trusted information, um, she kind of had. So, I mean, it definitely is on people's minds and certainly with her remit as the Minister for Communications and Information should be high up there. But I think it's something that should be across the board, uh, an issue of concern. Yeah. Um, and Hannah, I want to come to you, I think, move away from this a little bit and go towards economy. Um, one um, phrase which I heard quite a bit, and I think everyone probably did, was cautious, cautiously optimistic. Quite a bit from, from C-suite leaders, from business leaders asking me, what's your outlook for 2024? We're cautiously optimistic. Um, and, and you know, even though there are some green shoots in the economy that um, we're, we're trying to see, there's still a big sort of geopolitical uncertainty going into this year. Um, in terms of sort of your conversations in Davos, do you, when you speak to C-suite executives, do you think some of this is being translated into real actions in terms of results, in terms of how companies are starting to think about 2024? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I guess in my experience, CEOs are always optimistic. <laughs> that's why they're CEOs and they kind of have to be optimistic. Um, I think there's obviously pressure given the three years, four years we've had, these enormous shocks <laughs> that have really reshaped the global economy and reshaped business and reshaped the way we work and uh, cost of living pressures. And, you know, we had a decade of ultra low cheap interest rates, so cheap money. <laughs> so in that environment, businesses can take on lots of debt and they can hire loads of people and, you know, like, if, if any of you bought a, bought a house, you know, five or six years ago and then had to refinance it or whatever, you know, when debt is cheap or when money is cheap, um, it, it lifts a lot of boats and it just, it, you know, it makes it an, an easy environment in which to do business. So a lot of that has changed and really put the screws on a lot of uh, businesses. And, and so now companies are looking for ways to cut costs and you know, obviously we, we had loads of tech layoffs in the last few years because they probably overhired. Um, and so again, I think just coming back to kind of the inflation interest rate story, which I know is a bit like, but the thing is the cost of capital really does influence everything. So, you know, with, with debt suddenly becoming so much more expensive, companies are having to become a lot more ruthless and focused in how they invest and, and where they invest. Um, Again, and maybe just to come back to AI, I think, and that's, I mean, uh, Faisal touched on this, that is really the, the potential and the promise of AI is that it will boost our productivity because the Western world has struggled with low productivity since probably before the financial crisis, you know, maybe even the mid 2000s, certainly after the financial crisis, productivity has been really weak in the US and the UK, especially in the UK and Europe. Um, and that's a problem for inflation. <laughs> Because if you are producing the same amount of goods with, but, but using more people to do it, that's inflationary, right? If you can produce more with less, then you can, you know, it costs less, that's disinflationary. And um, in an environment where there's, you know, some of the, the upside risks to inflation I mentioned, and also just longer term things like aging societies, you know, the remilitarization of the world, people are spending more on, on arms. Uh, investing into climate, into the green energy transition, all of that is inflationary. If 
fundamentally if AI can rescue us from our low productivity. And I think that's kind of what, it, for me, a lot of the conversations at Davos were, how, how is it going to make us more productive and not necessarily replace jobs. And I think um, Sam Oldman actually had quite a pragmatic view. He was kind of saying, you know, this is, this tool is not perfect. It's a tool just like any other tool. And some people are using it really, really well and it's making them more productive. And that's great, it's, it, but it can't do everything. Um, yeah, and, and I think that's really where, where the promise is. So kind of if you, can, if you can figure out how to use AI to make yourself more productive, you'll probably be a more valuable worker. It might, may not necessarily take your job. Of course, there's a big question around companies and countries that don't manage to do that. And is that going to worsen inequality? And I think, you know, there was a report out from the IMF kind of just ahead of Davos suggesting that um, th it could worsen inequality overall because some people will figure out how to use it and others will not. And, you know, so, but I think overall there is this, um, there is probably cautious optimism. Yeah. <laughs> Basil, any insights from our economic yeah. outlook? Well, I mean the great thing about going to a place like the World Economic Forum is just making those little linkages, your own sort of personal machine learning AI, like, okay, well, this thing happening over here in geopolitics might have this effect here, and, da -da 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 -da. and kind of like, uh, the bottom, uh, you, you can't escape from the fact that economics is being slightly dominated, not just by the shocks, but also by, you know, the election shocks that are coming. And let me just the two or three things that I think just from my conversations with like presidents and CEOs were like Wall Street thinks Trump is going to is most likely to win and it's going to be moving crab like in that direction. Maybe he's right. Maybe Trump is maybe he was right. Yes. All the sort of, you know, it was fairly transparent what's going on there. Um, another insight. I think we'll have a maybe a different view on this. Ukraine war is going to be frozen this year, whole of 2024 reflecting year of elections because Putin's got an incentive to wait for change in the White House. Um, Russia's managed to defend its economy far better than we would have expected given the kind of financial siege put on it uh, by just running a war economy. But that can't last, which is another reason why maybe it can last a year, but you can't expect this to last. Um, and then, so you've got this extraordinary situation, which I'm very interested in, which is that the, the West is now going to essentially try and find a way to seize, further seize the Russian money and spend it and give it to Ukraine, partly because Donald Trump might pull the funding. So I'm just, see, it's all yeah. kind of kind of connected, um, but it kind of ex has a big impact. Um, you know, but that frozen assets thing is a big thing. You know, if they do that with big question marks about, you know, as, as one of the finance ministers said to me, well, if we do this to Russia, oh, everyone goes, oh, well done, congratulations, obvious thing to do. Yeah. What are the Qataris going to say when they're pressurized because of what's happening in the Middle East? So these are sort of unknown connections, something that sounds obvious. Generally, I mean, unbelievably relaxed about what's happening in the Middle East in terms of its economic impact, which is obviously not its biggest impact. But I don't think that's because they, it's almost like you can't calculate the probability here. Yeah. So why bother? You know, this is like a, you, you know, if there's another shock, it'll put, you know, if they block the, the Straits of Hormuz as well as the Bab el-Mandeb um, and the Suez Canal, I mean, all bets are off, oil will be at 200, we might as well go home. Yeah. There's no, you know, there's no, there's no point actually getting too worried about that. It's completely beyond my control. But that's, some people have interpreted this as that saying, oh, it's all fine. You know, I don't think it's all fine. Just that you can't really, it's not something you can put into your computer model, I don't think. Um, and then a couple of little nuggets I thought were really interesting 
all of this is especially bad news for the German economy, where you think of the four sort of legs of their stool of their yeah. economy. You have cheap Russian gas, exports to China, US security umbrella, and cheap labor. Yep. All four, all four. gone, yep. right? And the, and the Germans incapable of re of wanting to spend the money, borrow the money, and spend the money to reboot their economy. That's very, very interesting for EU's biggest economy. Um, um, and then there's a, we can talk about this later, backlash against ESG. Very interesting. Yeah, it's going to come to ESG. Yeah, we'll come on yeah. And then on my personal wild card was obviously managing to doorstep the president of Rwanda. Oh, tell us about that. Oh, no, that was fantastic. You know, obviously our strategic aim was to get two doorsteps, the global CEO of Fujitsu and the... Uh, and the president of Rwanda, and we managed to do that and um, asked him, what was it, how's it going with the deal with the UK? Yeah. Ask the UK, it's their problem, not our problem. Oh, it's a problem, is it? Uh, Interesting. Um, uh, it's a problem, is it? Is your country safe? I said, ask the UK, this is the UK's problem, not Rwanda's problem. What about the money? You can have the money back. Wow, so really? the return on investment for the send, although it's very expensive to get a chalet at, uh, yep. <laughs> at Davos, is I think we, we, we won 300 million back for the British taxpayer. Yeah, so, amazing, that's great. I think I can expense a fondue for that. <laughs> Absolutely, brilliant. Well, we'll come to the ESG in a second, but I wanted to sort of go back to geopolitics and Yasmin, get um, sort of your insight Disagree. into- um, I'm probably wrong. Of, no, I'm econ economics, probably Yasmin's probably- You probably couldn't see that I was nodding. <laughs> right, okay, okay. We should have an argument though. Yeah, I know, I was like, mm, well, I mean, <laughs> Typical BBC. I'm trying to think of what you said that was. No, I mean, I, I think it's true. I think I was, because I was, Davos last year was my first time attending the forum. And there I was really struck and kind of had presumed that that was the norm, that um, Ukraine was really front and center. And, and you know, talking to a Ukrainian um, source of mine this time around, who was also there last time, as he said that, you know, he it was his view that he didn't necessarily... Um, this is like a Ukrainian attendee who's, who's quite plugged in, but not a member of, of the government or, or kind of any official, official capacity. But it was his kind of impression that that wouldn't necessarily have been the World Economic Forum's choice, but that Europe had kind of really come behind Ukraine strongly. And that was why it played such a, such a central role. Um, it was the Russians used to be all over Davos. Yeah. Yeah. Secret, yeah. yeah. Secret weird parties and yeah, stuff. They had their house and promenade. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Um, this time they didn't. Um, and. Sorry? Verboten. They're not allowed anywhere. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I, but yeah, but meanwhile, Ukraine House was, was on the promenade and had pretty excellent coffee from Kiev, I will say. Um, but yeah, so, you know, this time around, and I remember talking to a Ukrainian parliamentarian last time, and she told me their real message is we need to win the war this year. Like, this cannot go on another year. Obviously, that hasn't happened. So this time, um, it, very different delegation in the fact that it was led by Zelensky, but it very much felt that this was about, in part, reminding the world that this isn't just about Ukraine, but it's also about shoring up support that they fear is is perhaps receding a little bit. And I think particularly on the money side in the U.S., of course, you have billions in Congress that's tied up. Um, and, and in the EU, of course, you have Hungary kind of kicking up a stink about EU funding. Yeah. So a, a lot of question marks. And then, of course, the that uncertainty with regard to the upcoming elections and how that's going to influence things. Um, in terms of using Russian assets, I know that this was something that um, Canadian Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland was really beating the drum about. Um, and I'm sure she wasn't alone. Um, she did make the point, though, that I think in terms of Canada's ability to do anything, that they had about $140 dollars 
or something like that of Russian money in Canada. So they couldn't, you know, this has to be kind of a bigger effort, um, not something that they can really do a lot of on their own. I guess for, for whatever reason, Russia doesn't, p perhaps Russian um, billionaires don't like to put their money in Canada. But, um, but yeah, I mean, on the whole, it felt very much like they were trying to claw back a lot of the attention they had last year. Um, I was kind of surprised, I guess perhaps I shouldn't have been by the fact to the point that you made that I don't think people were that fussed about the ongoing conflict um, within Israel and Gaza, um, or at least that it wasn't really dominating, because I, I think people were really aware that, you know, there was a fear, and I think Zelensky even articulated this, that Gaza was drawing away some attention and even resources away from Ukraine. You didn't really see that evidenced that much in Davos, um, and I think that was to the disappointment, um, not just of, of, you know, the very small Palestinian delegation that was there, but also the Israeli delegation. I mean, of course, they had Israeli President Isaac Herzog give an address. Uh, he focused very much on Iran, but also the hostages. Um, but they also had representatives, and I interviewed a couple of them, of, of families of those who've been held hostage, as well as former hostages themselves, who are really trying to appeal to people to put more pressure to get them out over 100 days into this conflict. So I, I think they were, you know, when I spoke to them, we were still about midway through, but I think they were kind of disappointed that it was, they were finding it really difficult. Though they did get an audience with a lot of CEOs. I think Palantir had kind of was housing them. And so they were, um, you know, they were meeting with a lot of pretty big figureheads, um, but the extent to which they could really dominate the topic uh, or the, the gathering, I think was difficult. I think the last thing I'll say, which was a really noticeable difference on my part is that compared to last year, Ukraine was front and center, but I think Ukraine is also sort of framed as really a very black and white issue. As Faisal was saying, Russia was nowhere to be seen last time and this time. Israel, Palestine, Gaza stuff, much more fraught. I found that when people did talk about it and they certainly talked about it, it was with a bit of angst um, and anxiousness. I think this is just a difficult topic and people find it very controversial. And for that reason, I think they probably wanted to steer clear from it. Um, and if you're, you know, a businessman who wants to talk about AI, you probably can, um, and, and that's fine. Um, but yeah, so I think there was a bit of disappointment in, in that regard. That's great. I mean, so we, we want to keep some time for questions and answers. So I'll get to my last question, which is Davos is a lot about parties. It's also about celebrity spotting. It's about these interesting stories behind closed doors, the you know conversations. And I'll talk about my fun story from Davos and would love to hear from you all what your top top interaction was. But I was went to interview the, um, the minister of AI for UAE. They do have a minister for AI at UAE. Um, and so I was downstairs in their pavilion, waiting literally just outside of a room for the room to open, talking to PR. And the room just opened and there was Sam Altman right in front of me. And I the first word that came out of me was a four letter word that rhymes with duck. And uh, and he he laughed out loud and and you know kind of two minute interaction and then he walked away and then he turned back and he smiled and I was like he'll definitely remember me um, but for me I think that was a high point of Davos <laughs> just looking at a CEO who we write about quite a lot and you know you know coming those words coming out of me but that was my story would love to hear from you all what was your sort of it could be fun interaction it could be an interesting um, takeaway anything that you noticed that stayed with you uh, tell me first yeah well I, we were. We only had a team of three, mm -hmm. and so uh, the extent to attend such wild gatherings. I mean, uh, three or four years ago, I might, you know, I'm, everyone tries to get into the Salesforce party. You have to blag your way in. Even if you're in most parties, you get invited, you get on the list, and then you still have to blag your way in. Um, uh, and 
Yeah, no, it's it's when you start to feel old because they get some top pop star and you're like, I don't know who... Th-. It's not only that I don't know who this is, I literally... I don't even know to begin who to what to Google to find out who this person is. <laughs> and it was like... And, and, and she was obviously extremely famous. And you're like, shit. And then, then I, think, I don't even care who this is. But it was apparently Zara Larson. And uh, you have sort of, you have Mark Carney here and you have Zara Larson over there. You think, what is this? This is so weird. It's just weird. But then, you know, probably nearly sliding over Will I Am. But does he even count as, is he a famous pop star anymore? Because this is being recorded. He's uh, um, uh, always more famous than I am. <laughs> but uh, but, but I'm not, I'm just, I think he is like quite famously in some, cor- some cheese cool officer no, they have st- you probably all name these people don't you like chief joy officer and things officer. like that was a chief happiness officer that really like that. Is. Yep. intel or something yeah yeah i'm not gonna say that's ludicrous but i'm just saying you know okay <laughs> he was there but does that matter um and then it, i mean what sting so yep, they have yeah. this thing so they have this thing where where the the s- sustainable development goals s- someone like i think from freud's hires a chalet and they call it Goal's House. Oh, yes. And everyone just hangs out there. Right. Yep. I didn't get to go. I didn't I didn't have time to go this year. But the night I was going to go, and the night, one time I've been before, it was like, you know, Woody Harrelson was playing backgammon with like, yeah. God, you've got to be careful with celebrities. They're telling you because some of them hasn't gone well for them in the past couple of years. I was going to mention a name there and I'm going to stop. Uh, but Woody Harrelson playing backgammon with an interesting celebrity who I won't mention. But this time it was Sting was there, yeah. Trudy, wasn't it? But yeah. um, and then they went south for it. But you know, whatever. You know. Anyway, I didn't see any of them, and I didn't. Uh, and even if I did, I, did, I you know I was working really hard for the BBC, <laughs> the license to play, and I wouldn't have gone. I wouldn't have accepted anything, even food or a canapé. <laughs> All right, Yasmin. Oh, um, I kind of feel bad that I didn't go to the Salesforce thing. Now I was busy writing as well. Um, I heard Sting was there. I heard it was great. Um, celebrity sightings. I mean. The one sighting that surprised me, don't really know if he constitutes a celebrity, was Jared Kushner at um, briefly at the beginning of Time's Dinner. Um, looking rather scruffy, I didn't recognize him at first, um, but did get me thinking. Kind of just, yeah, like just like, because I feel like he's really clean shaven when he was in the Trump administration and he was just kind of wearing a jumper and I don't know, he just looked very casual, but like, like Davos business casual, sort of <laughs> acceptable, um, not maligning Mr. Kushner, but um, I did think a, bit. Yeah, a little bit, um, <laughs> within reason. Um, I did kind of wonder, you know, is, um, that was a joke for, for the recording. Um, <laughs> um, it's um, the future of secretary. Really sorry for, forgive me. Um, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, I, I, I did, you know, find myself wondering, like, is he, you know, and what, in what position or role is he going to return to Davos next year? Because, you know, yeah. his, his father-in-law seems to be doing decently well um, in the Iowa caucus. And, of course, we have New Hampshire. Yeah. So, you know, we'll see. Um, I know from the time reception, which I was busy writing, did not actually attend, but could hear that Will I Am was there and they were playing the Black Eyed Peas, which oh. I thought worked very nicely. But I think my actual favorite sighting again, not quite a celebrity, was because I knew that the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, was not attending Davos. He was invited, but he sent uh, kind of someone else to represent him. I didn't know who that person was until I tried to steal that person's table from the central lounge, unknowing, not knowing who it was. And that's kind of the the beautiful thing about Davos. It's a concentration of people. You never really know who you're going to meet. In my case, I found the leader of the delegation by trying to slyly take his table when he looked like for a moment, I think he was like gonna get a drink or something. I was like, are you leaving? Um, anyway, we ended up sitting next to each other and I figured out who he was and 
the rest is history. That's great. That's a great story. Hannah, any interesting stories from you? Um, I, this is where I have to sort of expose myself and disclaim that I wasn't actually there in person because I was waiting for my indefinite leave to remain to be processed. I couldn't leave the country. Otherwise, I may have ended up in Rwanda. But, um, but uh, yeah, so I actually covered it all remotely. Um, but and I have been it has been successful, thank goodness. So I won't be deported anytime soon. Um, but I think the one interesting person, this may be a bit dry, but uh, Li Xiang from China, who's the most senior Chinese official to attend Davos in probably seven years, I think since 2017 when Xi Jinping himself went, speaks volumes about um, kind of China wanting to remind everybody that, hey, we're still here. And yes, our growth may be really a lot weaker than it has been, but don't forget about us. And we are still open for business, even though we've been cracking down quite, you know, uh, strongly on on tech entrepreneurs and kind of wanting to wanting to position China still as a place to invest for foreign companies. I think, and I and I believe there was a a, a lunch or a dinner with with him and and business leaders. So I think that was notable. Um, sort of says that, that China that very, is... Yeah, go on. The, the, the substantive point is quite interesting because, yeah. of course, w when everyone was talking about climate change, yeah. it's a lot easier for the corporates to kind of co-opt the celebs in yeah. and everybody's going in the same direction. With the world just a bit more complicated, you mentioned what's happening in the Middle East, you know, rise of the Gulf states, they're pretty influential and bought up half the companies that are there. And, you know, where, where, where do you... You know, even if they were interested in pushing on the ESG yeah. issues... Like whose side you take right. and all this sort of stuff, they're like, oh, okay, no, let's just focus on boosting the share. Yeah, again. absolutely. And AI, they were saying a lot about AI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The Middle East uh, not, but, not, yeah. And, the, and climate change was absent. She's absolutely right about China. China yeah, China, it was very interesting. Sorry, go on. Come and invest. Yeah, come and invest, exactly. 150 people from China in terms of delegation. Worried but not groups. really seeing a Chinese presence on the promenade as much as you see AI, India, India. Middle East. Um, which is which is very interesting. It was very quiet behind closed doors, but still very much present. Um, all the interviews when you know business leaders being very cautious about what they say about China, um, which kind of drives the message very much that China was present, but still not present. Right. Um, okay, we have time for questions and answers, so please um, raise your hand if you have a question. Um, just picking up on the China debate because it was literally a year ago that they opened their borders after being in lockdown. So I was wondering what effect that that's had on the global economy. And I know we mentioned earlier about the electronic um, cars, electric cars, and how mm. that's like taken over from Tesla. So it would be interesting to understand more about the economics of that on the global scale. So what impact China has had ever since reopening borders? It hasn't. I mean, that was one of the great probably misses from our predictions from a year ago was that China's opening up would be this great engine of the economy. It's spluttered. Except, as you rightly point out, the EVs absolutely booming, so much so that it could take over. I mean, you've seen Europe try to put up some defences against it. Um, so uh, it has, there are general sense, and it's somewhere between the geopolitics and the economics, concerns about the Chinese economy, that it might need some rescuing, apart from the EV boom, which is going spectacularly well. Is it half of all cars in China right now, electric vehicles? I think that's right half and then and and byd is now the biggest was last quarter biggest car producer in the world yeah EV, yeah, EV, yeah, EV yeah taking over tesla in the world these are these are amazing things but their model 
their model of not political freedom, but economic freedom, that balancing act is quite difficult to to pull off, isn't and isn't really working. And there are loads of debts everywhere. So let's see where it goes. Yeah, I think just that's absolutely right. Everybody was super excited about China's reopening last year and it didn't really deliver the goods. And some of that is down to short-term factors like the property crisis, which is really weighing on the Chinese economy and on local government finances. But also there is a longer-term story here and a sort of a structural slowdown in China's growth and a, and a, a shifting in who's going to benefit from that growth. So it's becoming a more domestic, a domestically focused economy. It's shifting. Well, it's, it's really trying to shift. Quite how successful th- that is, is is where there's some question marks. But for years, it's been an investment-heavy you know, central planning, government infrastructure, importing loads to build railways, to build cities. So that's benefited Germany. And, you know, uh, Faisal mentioned, like, you know, Germany's really going to lose out here. But also as the Chinese economy becomes a more westernized economy, where services play a bigger role, that's going to benefit domestic companies more than foreign companies. And so I think um, that does have implications for exporters. Germany, Zambia, you know, commodities exporters, Australia. Um, and, I, and that may also be why China's trying to sort of open up. Well, they say they're, they're wanting to open up more to, to FDI because they do need that, that investment. But I think, I think there's just a structural shift underway in China's economy and demographics are working against it. So um, I think we had a story a couple of months ago from one of my colleagues out of Hong Kong saying China's going to get old before it gets rich. And Japan managed to get rich first and then got old. China may not manage to do that because of the the one-child policy, which the government has now obviously reversed, but people are not having children. That's a whole separate issue, the collapse in global fertility and what that might mean for for economies. But I think for China, that is a big big problem, is that its its population is aging and... um, so, so, you know, where the growth will come from. But they're asking women to have more children now. Yeah, yeah, I mean, a lot of Asian economies are doing that. And a lot of Western, I mean, so unless AI can, you know, t- t- you know, <laughs> we do need to have more children. That's controversial. I the Steven Spielberg film from way back when that is on a similar sort of AI, like kind of, or, yeah, anyway, watch it. It's prescient, I guess, or it might be. That'd be scary if it were. Oh, I, I just one thing, just in terms of an insight from Davos, yeah. typically you're going up some funicular, and I'm talking to some guy that I failed to meet because I thought the meeting was at the top and it was at the bottom. So we have to have a meeting on the phone as I'm getting towards him. And he says, I'm going to have to go. Anyway, he tells me it's war between the US and China over quantum and China might win, right? So yeah. don't write off China too soon, right? Yeah. Uh, if they win the quantum. So apparently it's like, okay, we all need AI. And then, oh no, now you need to buy this quantum over here, yeah. right? And at the minute, the computers have got to be like in a freezer, minus 170 degrees, it's not going to work. Yeah. But the battle and China's repatriating some of its researchers that it sent to the West. That battle, if China wins that battle, yeah. all this like this will be temporary stuff. Uh, I mean, one it of the panels. Fish- sorry, just yeah. one of the panels I was on was exactly this issue of like this tech arms race between the U.S. and China, and there was a Republican senator who basically said that the reason they, because I think it's, maybe it was the IBM CEO was basically saying you can't control these technologies; no. they are digital, therefore. Putting up borders and export controls on chip technology is, is sort of work, fruitless. Yeah. But the, the Republican senators kind of said, "Well, um, even if it just slows them down a little bit, like it's it's a matter of months." Is basically what, it, what he was saying that like months can make a difference in this race to AI. So we realize that we can't control this entirely because it's digital. 
But even if it, even if you know these uh, export controls, which the US tightened about you know three months ago, four months ago, um, even if that just slows them down by months, that gives us time to get a little bit ahead. So that, I mean, that's really interesting. We should get another question. You get four journalists in a panel; they'll not stop talking. So I think no, you go first, and then. Very insightful, thank you. Was there anything that stood out from a sustainability and climate change perspective? We're used to having Greta Thunberg having that, and you were, I think, missing her sphere. Was there uh, the, the sort of lack of it, in a way, that stood yeah. out. However, that's not to say that everyone's revert. In it. It's just sort of maybe it's just baked into the into the conversation now. You know, uh, I had a, from a leading energy sort of people they're like it's just it's just happening a peak crude oil demand is going to hit by the end of the decade the car companies are not going to change their mind about evs this juggernaut is now going to transform things but as as something that companies were wanting to wave around and say in many ways climate change was quite an easy kind of topic to connect with millennials and, and everyone and it was just seemed to be less controversial I think what you'll find in some of the elections over this year, it will become a controversial topic. Not the fact of it, but the pace at which and who pays the price for these climate change changes. The changes have been quite easy. They've been in the plumbing of the electricity system. Everyone can agree with that. Let's be more efficient. As soon as you're telling people, well, it seems to have worked with EVs so far, maybe, I don't know. But with like, as soon as you're telling people, rip out your boiler, have a heat pump, hasn't worked in Germany, it's been a problem in Germany. You know, if that becomes weaponized as an electoral issue, I say weaponized, you know, it's a legitimate source of chat, then we're getting to crunch point, I guess, in terms of the changes climate change policies will have in people's lives. And that means it suddenly becomes more political. Yeah. Theory. That's a theory. I agree. I think what stood out most was that it was climate change was the top for three or four um, kind of points of, of the uh, World Economic Forum's risk report that they published in advance of, of kind of the big issues to watch in 10 years. I mean, it was three, four things that were all related to climate change. And despite it being the hottest year on record, yeah. it just wasn't really. I mean, Jane Goodall was there yeah. doing what she does best in, in terms of kind of stressing the urgency, but I don't really think it featured in many of my conversations yeah. at all. Um, I think the gentleman in white, did you have your hand up there? Okay, no, 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 I think the, the behind you, I think you had your hand up earlier and I missed you, but no, no, that's okay. Yeah, I thought you had your hand up earlier. Yeah, sorry, I missed you earlier. Panel, um, does Nikki Haley have any remote chance of uh, narrowing the gap um, with Trump for the Republican nomination? Yeah, it's been I think this one's for you. <laughs> it's always the American accent. They're like, what are you? Uh, I, I don't think so. Um, I think, you know, one has to wonder, and I think my U.S.-based colleagues could probably answer this more better than I could, uh, given just our focuses, if, if the Republicans had united behind an alternative to Trump candidate rather than sort of having a few of them go after him, whether that would have worked. But I think the fact that, like, you know, all the ones who have dropped out seem to have backed him. I mean, we'll see how things go in New Hampshire, if maybe if things go well, show up. But I think the polling and even the way the Democrats are talking would suggest that they're fully expecting a, a Trump rematch here. Yeah, gentlemen there. On that note, uh, you guys talked a lot about trust today. I'm curious, you know, going into an election year, how should publishers be looking to cover more populist leaders like Trump, but also, you know, outside of the U.S.? Um, I know there's a debate about this even today that was reported for this week that was reported at CNN happening at the highest parts of the company. I'm sort of curious what you guys think. 
factually is what i would say you know that's 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 the i mean i i'm someone that's covered for a different media organization i've covered politics uh and that can and i've covered it some of the same issues from me with an economics lens the data and i just find the levels i find the levels of trust with the viewer and reader and listener i find it it's just a lot easier conversation you're stating facts showing evidence you're linking to reports you're doing with charts now it's not that's not everything of journalism but I find that whenever you're saying, well, my source tells me this, you know, people just don't buy it anymore. I, even when it's true, even when you've got the best sources in the world, right? Going around for dinner every night, you know, they, they just people don't want to hear that. I, I feel uh, there is a role for it, but kind of, it's almost like the, a rebalancing towards this type of journalism is, is, is the way to answer it. But, you know, it raises questions, you know, in some of the conversations at Davos, you know, the act of fact-checking is seen as an aggressive act. You know, sort of like, if you can weaponize, oh, look, they're fact-checking me. They're obviously against me. And you're like, oh, you know, you, that's quite tricky. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I think, at least certainly with Trump, but I think you could apply this to, to a lot of other kind of sort of illiberal populist-type leaders, um, is I, I know, at least in the U.S. in 2016, and, and I just happened to be getting my start. I was at the Atlantic at the time in DC. I mean, I remember watching, like, obviously we sort of caught onto everything he said. I feel like there was just hyper focus on him and every outrageous thing. Um, maybe because we've already had four years of him, there will be less of that. But I am, I, I almost say maybe we should kind of reflect on how we covered, <laughs> covered him the last time and see, if, but I mean, also we have to think back to 2020 and particularly with like kind of the warnings about questioning the, the integrity of the election. I mean, a lot of that did come to pass. And we saw a lot of those warnings even come to pass in countries like Brazil. Um, so, so I think, yeah, I mean, facts, of course, are going to be the rule of the game. But, but I think in particular this year, I, I think given the rise of AI and the propensity for potentially even the slightest thing just being a bit wrong. But, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll use one kind of example that's not an election, but amidst this ongoing war in Gaza, there was an image going around that I actually think maybe some of your astute colleagues at the BBC had caught. Um, there was an image going around of a man carrying a bunch of children in Gaza, and it looked really realistic. And it was going, you know, I saw loads of people, including even, you know, some people I know sharing it. Um, but if you look really closely, you'll see that he actually physically couldn't have been holding that many children. And actually, he may have had to have like an extra arm. Um, was that image real? I mean, were there are there plenty of horrible images coming out of Gaza? Yes, you don't need to make up more of them. But like it's little things like that that I think we need to really watch out for. And yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's tricky because one could then say, you know, if you're fact checking, like, oh, are you denying what's happening? Like, no. But this particular image is is not real, and there's actually plenty of real ones that we can show you. So, yeah, just being very, very careful. Yeah, I think can we take one last question. Okay, I think, I think, yeah, you've been waiting for a while. Just about AI regulation and AI in Davos, and a lot of the debate is focused on these long-run existential risks that I think OpenAI and Google managed to sort of direct our attention to. Mm -hmm. But everyone here, and a lot of people here, are not in the monetization of policy journalism, and there's a real big existential risk to the model underpinning journalism, which is that our IP is being ingested and is being synthesized and presented back to users. I wondered if that featured in any of your conversations at Davos um, and I suppose your personal views as a journalist. 
instead of us. It, it probably, you know, this is like there's a bit of a church and state here thing here, which is probably we're all journalists and it's get you know we probably shouldn't be having conversations <laughs> with people we're reporting on yeah. about whether they're using our content. It's a very in. So obviously, you're talking about the New York Times uh, litigation. Obviously, very interesting. Uh, I I can factually say that we. I mean, he. Altman addressed it on the stage. He was asked about it on the stage. It was an interesting answer. I think, I think, if I remember, it was like we were negotiating with those guys. There was just no need for this. It was that type of answer. Yeah, that's how he left um, it. But he did make just to just before you yeah. carry on. Just he did say something about the fact that there's a difference between training, using the data to train, and then actually, I think I think one of the things is we want to give the New York Times a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and, and then actually pointing people to those two publishers yeah. when they use AI. So it's one thing like using the data to train and another thing saying, actually, hey, here's a bunch of, so it could benefit publishers, I guess, if they do that. I don't know if, yeah. if they will or how, or this is where this issue comes in of like, um, I know for CNN, like with some of our really larger than life anchors, people know the anchor, but they don't associate that person with CNN always because they've seen them on TikTok. Or they've seen them somewhere else. So, um, so I think that's an interesting question over, like, you know, how the platforms match you. I mean, I think you can be, in, in fact, take what you just said and really, it's the greatest validation of quality journalism and writing you can possibly imagine. You know, literally the things that are going to drive the entirety of world growth, we're told, are completely parasitic upon all of the writing that us and our colleagues have done in brands like that, because you can't trust utter the utter nonsense and garbage being ch- machine churned into the internet right now it's like you know it's a quite an amazing thing to think about um and we're only to, the honest truth is i think we're only just becoming aware of how much uh, of how reliant that relationship is we're not entirely sure at the minute because it's all happened but logic dictates that if you're trying to train this wise ai in clear language that's factual and correct which you know which sources of words is it gonna use um but we don't you know i think everyone's in the process of actually finding finding that out right now but yeah it it is it's very profound i do agree uh, and perhaps more profound than people realize for the media that the ai models are all trained on vast swathes of our content yeah Well, thank you so much to the panelists and thank you. Sorry, we couldn't get to all of your questions, but hopefully you can find us um, and, you know, we can continue the conversation. But thanks again. And thank you to World Media Group for hosting us.